Hey guys, welcome to part two of episode 73. This is the True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we have been really eager to get back to you with the follow-up episode on Billy Hughes and the massacre at Pottery Cottage. Before we begin, we just wanted to wish all of our listeners well. We hope you're safe and home, and if you or any of your loved ones are ill, we hope for a speedy recovery. Also, at the end of this episode, we're going to have a shout-out for all of our new Patreon donors, thanking them for all that they do for us. In the meantime, let's get our minds off of all of this craziness and lose ourselves in a case about a different kind of survival. Where we left off, Billy Hughes, a longtime criminal and serial abuser, had managed to escape custody by using a stolen knife to nearly kill his two accompanying officers. He left them in a heap, bleeding heavily into the snow, and now Hughes was being unleashed onto the countryside of Eastmore just as the brutal snowstorm coming from the north was. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Miles away in the large but cozy country estate of Pottery Cottage, Amy Minton was preparing vegetables in the kitchen that belonged to her daughter. Amy was a very proper and loving woman. Her and her husband Arthur, who was a well-respected and since-retired grocer in the area, lived with their younger daughter Jillian and her husband Richard Moran, as well as their 10-year-old granddaughter Sarah. The 18th century estate was an attached mother-daughter style cottage that had beautiful French doors and picture windows that looked out onto the moors that surrounded them. It sounds like a really nice place to live. Oh my God. If I could live there, um, I would just be sitting outside all the time. I Well, yeah. I We need a house so I can go outside. You know what? Even just a balcony. <laughs> listen, listen. Just a balcony would be nice. I feel like in this apartment, listen, we there's people who have it way worse than we do right because yeah. that's no, how i always like to try grateful. to look at things but a balcony added to this apartment would make this like a done deal for I just, a while i just need to like go outside sometimes <laughs> i'm know? already pale to begin with and this just makes it worse not having an outside well, you and i both we're pretty pale right now yeah. as we're looking at our arms <laughs> i know it's pretty rough guys <laughs> so the life of the morans and minton seemed perfect and Honestly, it was, but it wasn't an easy road to get there. The Morans and Mintons were a strong family that worked hard and sacrificed for everything they had. The Minton family had run their grocery store through both world wars, and six years after his marriage to Amy, Arthur got into a terrible motorcycle accident that took one of his legs, so he had an artificial leg. They had two daughters in the late 1930s, First, Barbara, and then Jillian. Jillian was very popular in school, and she was as strong-willed and dedicated as her parents were. She attended secretarial college after school and began working right away, but she wanted to get her driver's license. So Arthur, always encouraging of his daughters, was determined to teach her how to drive. And he did. Because she had her license and she was a typist, she got a high-paying job as a secretary and delivery woman for a car part business. On one day in 1958, Jillian made a delivery to a very handsome receiving clerk. He told her his name was Richard Moran. 
He was an Irishman with dark features and an illuminating smile. Nervous to ask her out, Richard asked a mutual friend of his and Jillian's if she would be interested in going out with him on a date. That's cute. Yeah. I, uh, it, I also find it really funny how all the different jobs that you could have like been a part of back then, mm-hmm. it's like, none of those things exist anymore. It's like, no. take pride in the little things, you know? It's like so weird how like those things don't exist. I know, these are things that like people just ship things out now. Yeah, so. it's so weird. A lot of things have gone obsolete. It's true. So for their first date, they went to a dance. A very jovial and likable man, Richard told Jill on their first date that she was just too pretty to be left on the shelf. And one year later, in 1959, the couple married. Richard promised his new bride that their children would never want for anything. He was dedicated to making his family as happy as possible. And that was because he valued family a lot. He was born in Southeast Ireland, and he had been given up by his family. And he had been fostered by a family who he remained really close with. He had a lot of older foster sisters, and he stayed in touch with them almost on a daily basis, despite how much it cost for the phone calls back then. He wanted to create a happy, loving home like the one he was lucky to be raised in. Richard had always worked. He was a laborer when he was 14 until he joined the National Army. Afterwards, he had gotten a job in a factory. He was quickly promoted to sales clerk, which was where he had met Jillian. After their wedding, he was promoted again to department manager. And this is when they moved to Derbyshire. However, Jill was worried about her elderly parents and convinced the couple to move in with her and Richard in the very large house that they had. Marriage to Jill and Richard came easily. The only thing that was difficult for them was starting a family. For seven years, the couple had tried to get pregnant, but it just wasn't happening. Finally, in September of 1966, feeling as if they tried for as long as they could, they opted for adoption. Three months later, the couple was given a beautiful baby girl that was born actually on the same day that they filed for their application. Her name was Sarah Jane. They wanted to raise their daughter in the countryside. So in the spring of 1967, they bought an 18th century country estate. It had been an old pottery barn. It was named North End Farm. It was in Eastmore and had the most spectacular views of the Peak District National Park. The isolated house was perfect for the young family and Jill's parents. Now, of course, Jill's parents helped them buy the house. And it was set up like a mother-daughter house, but a lot larger. It's really like two connecting houses is what it was. They were joined by a hallway annex. So you could enter the houses differently, and there was just kind of like a hallway in between them. I mean, that's pretty cool. That way everybody can still have their space. Oh, yeah. Both couples definitely had their privacy. So it was good to be together, but still separate. Jill and Richard worked so hard to modernize the house. They were the ones who put in the French doors and the picture windows. The renovations took two years to complete. Richard had taken part in starting a business, a plastics company, and he was head of their sales division. So the couple at this point did have a lot of extra money to spend. They loved throwing parties, so the house was totally set up for entertaining. All who entered said that the house was luxurious and modern, but without being pretentious. It was the perfect place to live. The family wanted a fresh start at the house, so they made it their own. They renamed it Pottery Cottage, and they had a sign made out of raw iron, and they placed it at the front gates of the house. 
In the late evening of January 12, 1977, Sarah was at school. Jill was at work as a secretary at an accountant firm, and Richard was working at Brett Plastics. Amy Minton had had a long day of cleaning homes of nearby neighbors and caring for their pets while they were at work. She was preparing dinner for her husband, daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter when a man just walked in the kitchen door. After Billy Hughes drove away, leaving a new set of victims in his wake, his car had crashed into a brick wall. The vehicle was totaled. There was not much in the area of the crash, so Hughes was forced to flee the scene on foot. The crash had not harmed him, so he was capable of doing so. The snow was falling heavily, and this would be the worst storm that the area had seen in 50 years. Now, this is kind of really weird, right? Because in the last episode, we talked about the rape and the grievous bodily harm incident that happened in the park, in Queens Park. Right. That was when there was a super drought, the worst drought that like England has ever had. And then there was a thunderstorm that ended the drought, and that's when the attack took place. And now this second massive incident that he's going to have in his life is during the largest snowstorm in 50 years. It's like, what is it with the weather in this guy? Like, he comes <laughs> yeah. in with the storms. Yeah, it's true. I don't want to say it, but I guess like, like cloak his and... MO. Well, no, like cloak and dagger. Like, the, the cloak is like the weather that's happening, and he's the guy doing the stuff. Wow, John. You like that? You like that? That was really good. Maybe that didn't make any sense at all, but it's like cloak and dagger. Like, he's just being camouflaged with the, with like the that. snowstorm and the rain, um, and he's killing his victims. Wow. You like that? You could If you told me that before, it could be the title of the episode. Ooh. Oh, damn. Sorry, John. That would have been really good. All right, well. Next time, I'll confer with you. Okay. <laughs> so the weather made things really difficult to see, but Hughes managed to find a main road, and he still had the knife with him. To throw off investigators, he chose to take a path that was quite difficult instead of the easy one. While walking, he fell into a bog and was forced to, to just hang out in a stream to avoid detection. So instead of like walking with the road, he kind of like walked within a stream. At one point, he had to climb rocks and lost his knife doing so. So now he was without a weapon, which was better for the people of the countryside. There were times that he thought he was going to stop in a home or a place of business, but it all just seemed too risky. So he continued to travel onward, soaked and freezing. Eventually, he was traveling on a road on which he saw a handsome building. It was extremely isolated, exactly what he needed. So he traveled around to the back of an estate that had a sign called Pottery Cottage. He went inside the shed, and inside, he found a lot of nice, new, shiny tools. Included in them were two large axes, a weapon he was all too familiar with. He took both of them with him. He looked inside a window and saw an elderly woman at the sink. He approached the back door and reached for the handle. It gave. The door had been unlocked. He walked inside and waited for her to notice that he wasn't who she thought he was. When Amy realized a stranger was in her house, she screamed and dropped her potato peeler to the ground. Now, you can only imagine how she must have felt at this moment. Because not only did someone just break in your house, like, 
You expected your daughter to be there or your husband to be there when you put your head up and it's some stranger, but not just like a regular stranger, like Jack Nicholson from The Shining after he went through the maze stranger. Like his hair's crazy. He has an axe. <laughs> yeah. And he's frozen from walking like five miles in the snow. I was, yeah, like it's funny that you said Jack Nicholson just, just because I was kind of thinking to myself, this is like the perfect setup for like a movie. Oh no, he's Jack Torrance, like post craziness no no absolutely point. but it's just so crazy like think about it right if we're setting the stage for a movie this is the movie oh i know that's he's how i felt writing this he you know he's trying to get in, into an area where there's where it's isolated mm-hmm. it's a farm residence kind of deal like on the state it's off the beaten path you can't get any more movie right. than that i mean how many movies do start with there's an escaped convict on the loose and he's dangerous and he's armed and now everyone's not only living in an isolated area but now everyone's even more isolated because of a storm that's coming in right exactly come on i mean so in a quiet whisper hughes told her not to be afraid okay really he said everything's gonna be okay i'm wanted by the police but i'm not going to hurt you amy just stared at him I mean, you really just wouldn't know what to say at that point. She didn't scream or run. She was in shock. So after moments of silence, he said to her, tell me who else lives here. She told him that her husband, daughter, and her family lived there. And the stranger wanted to know when they would all be home. Amy thought back to when they had just shared breakfast earlier that morning. Jill said she would be home right after work around three because of the snowstorm. So she didn't want to do like extra work. She kind of wanted to get home because it really was bad weather. Right. Richard said that he, too, after his last sales appointment at five, would come right home because of the weather. But it's never clear how long those sales calls were going to last. So they were unsure about when he would be home. That morning, Amy had watched her daughter and son-in-law leave together in separate cars. Sarah was waving at her father from the back seat of Jill's car, and they just seemed so happy. Amy told the man in the kitchen that her daughter was due home at any moment, and her granddaughter would be coming home soon by bus at the end of the school day. And she was unsure of when her son-in-law would be home because she just didn't know how long his appointment would last, like I said. So Arthur Minton heard his wife Amy talking to someone at the other side of the house. So he thought this to be curious as no one was due home yet. He walked into the kitchen to see what was going on, But as soon as he made it through the doorway, he was struck upside the head and knocked to the ground. When he came to, he was sitting on the ground. A man he had never seen before was crouched next to him. The man, Billy Hughes, stated that the police wanted him and he needed to hold out in a house only until nightfall. He reassured the man that if he did everything he said, it would be all right. This is when Hughes introduced himself and helped the elderly man up with the false leg off the ground. Hughes proceeded to tell the couple the story of how he escaped from the car with the two accompanying officers and the cab driver. They were horrified to hear the tale, and knowing Hughes up until this point, we could probably assume that he was making some stuff up, like making it sound worse than it was, because that's kind of his MO too. Like He likes to like make himself sound tougher, bigger than he than he is i mean what he did was horrific but he definitely is going to stretch the truth a little bit in his stories yeah i mean if you think about it right it it makes sense for him to do it even to two elderly people because 
He wants to maintain control. And what better way to maintain control um, is to just kind of elaborate, you know, just to kind of tell the story and make it a little bit bigger than it actually was, let's just say, or whatever. It's just to hold control at this point, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because they want he wants them to be frightened of him. But, again, he did assure the couple, please, I just need your help. So they're assuming that this will be over if they just comply. That's what he's telling them. Hughes then asked the couple to show him around the house. They did so, first showing him the Moran side of the house. The entire time he was carrying the axe. Hughes was shown the kitchen, living room, and the upstairs bedrooms. He was then shown their side of the house, the Minton side, through the annexed hallway. The Minton side was done in a similar style to the Morans, as they had been renovated at the same time. However, it was much smaller than the other side of the house. So while taking everything in, Hughes disconnected the phones that he saw. He also took his socks off and exchanged them for socks that they found in Richard and Jill's bedroom. So he felt very at home right away. The strange trio made their way back downstairs. Hughes asked Amy to make him a cup of tea, while Arthur, her husband, sat angrily on the recliner chair. It was obvious that he wasn't trying to, nor would be, placating Hughes while he was using their home as a hideout. Hughes asked Amy to tell him more about their daughter, Jill. As she did, Hughes came into the kitchen and took a large knife out of the knife block, and then he put it into his belt. Amy, Arthur, and Hughes were sitting in the living room drinking their tea when they noticed that a car pulled up to the house. Amy let Hughes know that this was Jill's vehicle. He instructed her to meet her daughter in the kitchen and calm her before she was introduced to him. As Amy rose from her seat, Jill began knocking on the kitchen door. Before her mother could say a word, Jill immediately began talking about how things were really strange. She asked her mother why the kitchen door was locked. It never was. Why would you do that? And before her mother could even respond, Jill inquired about the front gate of the house, asking why it had been left open, commenting about how the dogs would be able to get out. Now, as she was getting out her last words, Jill's mother stilled her. She grabbed her by the arms and said, don't panic. There is a man here with a knife and he's hiding from the police. If we keep calm, he won't hurt us. Jill thought immediately to the unusual number of police cars that she passed on her way home, and she shook her head in acknowledgement. Amy introduced her daughter to Billy Hughes, and Jill tried to stay calm as possible. All occupants of the house then moved to the kitchen table, where Hughes told Jill the story of how he had escaped. With Hughes's heavy accent and the fact that he was talking so low, it was hard for them to hear him. But his message at the end of his story was very clear. He told them he could have killed those officers, but he did not. If they did, as he said, he would do the same thing for them. Hughes then got right into his plan. He assumed that the police were going to start going door to door. And if they happened to come upon Cottery Cottage, Jill would go upstairs with him and run a bath. Amy would answer the door and tell them that Hughes was not there and her daughter was running a bath ensuring that even if the police did search the house, they wouldn't go in to where a woman was taking a bath. And they all agreed to the plan. Makes sense. I mean, yeah, wouldn't be doing that. And it doesn't seem too threatening yet. So 
I mean, right now there's no reason for them to, I mean, it's, it's a hard call because so many people, when you hear a story like this, you think, or you hear from other people, I would have done this. Why didn't they just do that? And I think that that's really hard to, it's, well, it's easy to say, I would have reacted this way, or why didn't they do that? When you're in this situation, you're in shock. There is nothing you can do. And they say that fight or flight isn't, isn't the only responses. There's, there's freezing, and that happens too. Also, you have to take into consideration at this moment, you have an elderly couple and their daughter, they don't want to see anything bad happen to their daughter. They don't want anything bad happening to themselves. And on top of that, the husband has a prosthetic leg. Yeah. So there's really not much to do. But I could say that most people would, most people listening would say, okay, well, I would look for an, you know, the most opportunistic moment to strike or like right. to, to try to do something. And I'm sure that would happen or could happen down the line in the story. But in this moment where we're at, it makes no sense. They're all defenseless. Yeah, that's really true. And they're also awaiting the arrival of a 10-year-old girl. Right. So it is, there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on here. Jillian Moran was really calm during this entire exchange. She told Hughes that her only concern was for her daughter. She was due home at any moment. So she asked Hughes if it was all right if they told Sarah that he was a motorist whose car had broken down. He was just using their phone and waiting out the snow with them until a tow truck could arrive. Now, this is something that um, Jill wanted to go with because this is something that has actually happened before, where people would break down. And because it is more of an isolated area, sometimes they do. Well, of course, they need to go to the house to use someone's phone because it's 1977. Nobody has cell phones. Right. So she thinks that would calm her daughter down. So because this helped Hughes out, he agreed to go along with the lie. Amy also tried to hide the axes so Sarah wouldn't see them and be alarmed. So that would kind of raise some red flags. When Sarah came in the door, it was 3.40. She was wearing her dress with a jumper. That's, a, that's like a sweater. And just in case you didn't know, John. Thanks, and I didn't know what a jumper was. And thick wool tights and her blonde ponytail bouncing as she was talking a mile a minute. She immediately began telling her mother the story about how she had won the school sports cup before her jacket could even come off. Her long blonde ponytail swayed with every movement that she made. Jill asked Sarah to come into the lounge and meet their guest, Billy. He was just waiting for a recovery truck. Hugh smiled at the girl, who smiled right back at him. For the next hour or so, the adults, including an escaped convict, made small talk over the 10-year-old girl who was playing with her sewing kit. Sitting in the room with Hughes in the house was bizarre. There were times where he was normal, having small talk with everyone and putting them at ease. Once he had even helped Sarah thread a needle, a task that she was having a problem with. But at other times, he seemed almost manic not speaking and pacing around the house, traveling from room to room, even going upstairs by himself. Sarah did not miss this happening. She said to her mother, he's a nice man, but why does he go wandering all over the place? I mean, how do you explain that to your daughter? I mean, it's it's weird for someone who's waiting for a tow truck to just search her house. Plus, I feel like 
the child knows it's kind of, I'm sure, disrespectful for a stranger or to a guest to kind of roam your house without you there, like next to them, you know? Yeah. Also, children sense things, and I'm sure she sensed that it was a little tense in that room. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jill reassured her daughter by just telling her that he was worried about his car. Bored of sitting around, Sarah turned on the TV, but a bulb had broken and the picture was distorted. After Arthur and Hughes tried to fix it, Sarah asked if she could just watch television on her grandparents' side of the house. Arthur looked to Hughes and he nodded at him. Arthur got up and walked with his granddaughter through the annex. Hughes seemed to be growing more and more anxious as time went on. He was worried about the arrival of Richard. Arthur had given him problems, so he only assumed that the other man of the house would as well. He kept asking Amy and Jill when he was going to be home, but the women truly had no idea. It depended both on his meeting and the snow falling outside. Jill kept telling him that things would be okay with Richard. He hated violence, and he was a really even-tempered man. Amy even confirmed that she had never seen her son-in-law get aggressive. Thinking that maybe Richard was trying to call home, Hughes decided that it would be a good idea to reconnect the phones at Pottery Cottage. He didn't want the man to be tipped off that there was something wrong before he even got to the house. I mean, that's smart, because, I mean, if you were trying to call to see how your family's doing during a snowstorm and they're not answering... You would think something's wrong. Yeah, exactly. Maybe you call, call somebody. <laughs> see, it's interesting because there are times where Hughes is kind of like a brilliant criminal and then a complete moron. Right. There's lots of ups and downs. Yeah. But I guess that's why people are criminals because what they're doing is... Not right. Not right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as it was reconnected, it rang. Hughes told Jill to answer it, but act naturally. To continue winning his trust, Jill chose to listen to the man's directions. At around 4.20 p.m., Jill answered the phone the way she always did. It was a friend on the other line. She tried to act as if nothing was wrong. Her friend talked about the weather first. It was terrible, and she asked her husband to come home early. Then she asked Jill if she had heard what was happening with the man on the loose. She denied knowing anything about it. She told Jill the little she had gathered and added that she should keep her doors and windows locked, especially because Richard wasn't home yet. Jill said she would do so. Eventually, the woman said she had to go, and Jill hung up the phone. Later, when the woman was questioned, she would say that she had no indication that anything was wrong. Also a little too late for locking the doors and windows. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) yeah, totally. But even at that point, I think even if the door was locked, that Hughes would have broken in. He would have found his way out. Yeah. It's a scary thing to say, but it's very true. If someone wants to get into your house, they can get into your house. Hughes was unfazed by the whole event and took up posts in front of the window facing the driveway. He wanted to be prepared for Richard. Time moved on as they waited. To maintain normalcy, Jill sat with her daughter in the kitchen and talked while Hughes paced nervously around them, once asking Jill to get him a map from her father's car. She did so. She took him to find a map of the area, and Jill was sure to always listen to Hughes. She wanted her family to get out of this mess alive, so she was just trying to keep them alive. Yeah, and that's a normal thing, too. Like, I mean, you want your family to be okay. It's self-preservation. Right, exactly. At around 6.15, Richard's car pulled up in the driveway. 
At this point, Arthur and Sarah were watching TV again on the other side of the house. Hugh stood up, grabbing the knife from his belt. He grabbed Jill and held her close to him, twisting her arm behind her back and pointing the blade against her throat. He told Amy that he would use the knife, so she better go outside and get her son-in-law and keep him calm. Richard walked slowly and wearily into the living room. Hugh screamed at him not to move or he would cut his wife. And Richard didn't move. He held out his keys to the man. He said, Take my keys. You can get away now. The car is full of gas. But instead, Hughes went around the house with Jill, wildly slashing at all of the cables that he could see. He was going to use them to tie up the family. First, Richard was tied up, face down on the floor, his ankles tied together and his wrist tied behind his back. Amy and Jill pleaded that this didn't need to be done. The family wasn't going to bother him. They would let him stay. Next, Jill was tied up. And as Jill was being tied up, Arthur and Sarah came around to the Moran side of the house as they heard the commotion that was going on. They were shocked. Arthur lunged at Hughes, but was easily pushed aside by the younger man. And Sarah screamed at him not to hurt her parents. Jill tried to calm her father as Richard worked to put his daughter at ease. But before they knew it, the entire family was bound and gagged, with the exception of Sarah, who, while watching her parents and grandparents being tied up, had grown silent and still in a nearby chair. The girl was terrified. Hughes then separated the family. He lifted Richard effortlessly over his shoulder and carried him to the spare room. He put Jill in the master bedroom, Amy in Sarah's room, with Arthur and Sarah staying in the living room for the time being. The house was quiet for a long time. Could you imagine you're all sitting in separate rooms and you don't know what's going on? What I would assume at this point was that maybe he's tying us up and then he's making a break for it, right? Because it has to be dark at this point. Richard got home at 6.15. It would take a good amount of time to tie up an entire family. So it's nightfall. He said, I'll leave at nightfall. So you would assume he's tying us up so it would take a long time for us to become untied and we wouldn't be able to call the police, right? So you would think he made his escape. Yeah, but we know this guy. (laughs) I know we know this yeah. guy, but they don't. I mean, I mean, I mean, yes. If I didn't know anything about this guy and this was happening to me, I'd probably think the same thing, like what you just said. Yeah, it would make sense. And you want to be hopeful. You I want... mean, if he's looking at maps and stuff to like look to see things, you would, you would just think to yourself, oh, okay, he's getting ready to like make his, you know, way out Get of away. here. Especially because yeah. everyone's home and he had tied them all up. Yes. So now they're just waiting silently in their separate rooms. Now, it's hard to say the amount of time that went by because when there's a recollection of what went down, you know, minutes seemed like hours. But the silence was finally broken by Sarah. She yelled up the stairs, don't be fooled, mom. He's still here. He's just gone quiet. Okay. So he was trying to trick them. 
Furious, Hughes carried the 10-year-old girl into the annex on the Minton side of the house. The whole house fell silent again. The silence was again broken minutes later, but this time by the shrill ring of a telephone. Jill saw Hughes rush into the master bedroom. He picked her up and carried her to the phone. Again, he warned her to be normal. It was Richard's nephew calling about a job that his uncle was trying to get him at the plastics factory. Jill told him that Richard was not home yet and that she would tell him that he had called. The call ended pretty quickly. He gagged her again and carried her back up into the bedroom. Time passed. Jill was again unaware of how much time because when you're tied up, you're really not sure. But sometime after the phone call, Jill heard a shuffling in the hallway, and it was approaching her open door. When she looked up, she saw her mother. It appeared she had gotten loose. When she saw Jill, she started violently shaking her head no. When she saw her, Jill violently began shaking her head no, trying to tell her mother to go back. Hughes had heard what was going on and ran up the stairs. He took Amy back to Sarah's room and tied her up again. Jill heard her moaning in pain because of the tightness of the new bindings. Sometime later, Jill heard another horrible sound. This time, it was coming from her father. It sounded like downstairs, in the living room, Hughes was beating her father. It broke Jill's heart to hear these sounds, knowing that she could do nothing about it. She knew her father was strong, so she kept repeating to herself, that he would survive this, that they would survive it all. But the beating went on for a long time. And as time went on, his cries became fainter and fainter until again the house fell silent. Shortly after the beating ended, Hughes came upstairs with a tray of cups. He brought tea to Amy and then to Richard. Finally, Jill heard him come into her room. He lifted her to the edge of the bed and took off her gag and bindings. He gave her the tea to drink. Hughes then sat next to her, and instinctively Jill knew what was coming next. She did not want to scream or alarm her family. He reached over and took her blouse off. He then stood up and undressed himself. He asked her to remove the rest of her clothing, but she let him know that she was on her period, and he saw that she was telling the truth. He then forced her to perform sex acts on him, and while she did so, he was very rough with her, at one point biting into her shoulder, enough to leave teeth marks. She lay on the bed after the assault as he got dressed. He tied her up again, but this time spared her the gag. He also tied her hands in front instead of behind. She asked him about her father and daughter, and he offered her a cigarette, holding it up for her as she smoked. Hughes told her about his own daughter, Nicola, and how much he loved her. Now this almost made Jill cry with relief knowing that he was a father himself. She was thinking maybe he won't harm my daughter because he's a father. Hughes left the room then and went straight to her husband. Jill heard him bragging about all of the criminal activities that he had done and all the things that he had gotten away with. Um, he was telling one story in particular about him strangling two Alsatian dogs. So an Alsatian dog is really, it's a German shepherd. 
Oh, okay. It's the same thing. During the war, they didn't want to call, like, the Allied side doesn't want to call, like, a German shepherd that they used to, like, oh, sorry, German shepherd, because they're facing the Germans. So that's why they, they were given the name Alsatians. Like the Alsace-Lorraine. Yes. The land in France. So they're the same thing, but that's just the two names, because they're, obviously they're British, so that's why they call it. Gotcha. It makes sense. Nice little history lesson yeah, there they don't for want, you. Yeah, they, they don't want to use German dogs. No. <laughs> I mean, the name has come back, but not during the wars. So he made up a story about strangling two dogs, which never took place. So it w- there would obviously be records of him doing that to police dogs. It didn't. So again, he's lying to the family. Right. He's, once again, spin. just trying to, like, spin any kind of story he can. Yeah. Just I, I think it's just to show his crazy side. Like, I think this is why he's doing it, too. Like, he wants them to think he's nuts. Yes. Or, you know, he could be calm and, and normal and then all of a sudden Switch. snap. Yeah, like, that's that's scary. Yeah, it is, it is scary because he's unpredictable. Yeah, no, totally. So for the rest of the night, Jill couldn't sleep. If she wasn't listening to the endless conversations that Hughes was trying to keep with her husband, she was listening to the howling winds outside. So she just never slept. And Hughes wouldn't let Richard sleep either. And I believe this is kind of like a tactic because he wants Richard to be as exhausted as possible because he's the strongest one that he's facing. Right? Right. Right. So it was hard for the police to track down Hughes. The storm made it impossible to trace tracks. And they did bring in dogs to kind of search for him. But the biggest problem was the last scent they could pick up of Billy came from that car he was driving. But in the car, there was the officer's blood all over the place. So the dogs were only really catching the scent of the officer's blood. It was overpowering any scent that he was left in the car. Which makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. So the dogs really couldn't help all that much. So the police from several towns were brought in together and they formed separate groups which who performed door-to-door searches. They warned the public that Hughes was dangerous. And they said, you know, if you see him, do not try and engage with him. At that point, Hughes had been facing 7 to 10 years. But after what he just pulled, he was facing life. So this guy has absolutely nothing to lose. I mean, you have to think, a guy who tried to escape prison has nothing to lose to begin with. Because what kind of normal life can you have after escaping prison? Yeah, I mean, how many people have really gotten away? There's not many. Right. No, it's a select few. So there was a rumor that he was headed to Blackpool to harm Jean. Um, He had apparently told someone he was staying in a cell with that he wanted to kill his wife. So the police, properly prepared in the town, moved Jill and her children into a safe house. So although this was a long shot and they thought it really far from the truth because he really wouldn't be able to travel that far in the storm, unless he got a vehicle, it could have been possible. But the police in Blackpool, they were taking every precaution and they were actually did a really good job kind of mobilizing, thinking, okay, maybe this guy could come here. So when Hughes still was not taken into custody the second day, the search continued. They believed that Hughes was headed towards a major roadway the A6. So all the grounds from the crash site to the A6 were searched. However, that first day, Hughes took the more difficult path, remember? And it was that path that was in the opposite direction of the A6. 
Right, so they're just missing the mark here. Yeah. Because you would think he would go... To a major easiest, highway. Major, and it, yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, I mean, the easiest route possible, not the hardest one. So they were completely off. Exactly. So, sorry, I cut you off sometimes. That's okay. Some people do say that. I apologize. It's quite all right. Sometimes <laughs> I do the same thing to you, and sometimes I don't make any sense sometimes, so it's okay. It's okay. It's just it's, we're a mess over it's here. It's just what we do. <laughs> so because of the snowstorm... There was another complication, not just the missing tracks. It was snowing really heavily, so schools and businesses were shut down. Usually what police could kind of find out when situations like this arise is, okay, has there been a family that has been called out of work and called out of school? Something might be wrong, right? Right. So that would be wonderful, but there's a snowstorm and schools and work are closed. So they really don't look into that route, which is pretty unfortunate because Sarah's school wasn't closed. Neither were Jillian or Richard's work. So they kind of, all once again, they kind of missed the mark. Yes. Where that would be a great plan, but considering the circumstances of the weather didn't really work out too well but it's right. funny that's that's so weird that it didn't affect that family so if they would have done that method it would have worked exactly because the next morning all of these things and more happened for the morans hughes went to each member of the family in the morning and brought them tea he told jillian he was taking care of her daughter and father and that he had fed and let the dogs out in the morning they had two dogs So he wanted her to shower and get ready as she normally did. He needed her to do something. So as she was getting ready, she heard the beeping of a truck. And then Hughes yelled out to her, Were you expecting anyone? She had forgotten that she had hired people to come and empty the septic tank. First of all, dedicated company to come out in a snowstorm like this. Hey, people need their septics uh, drained, uh, you know, know. clean sometimes. I've never lived in a house with a septic, thank God. So. I mean, I did. I, I, I think, like, I don't know, we were there like 15 years. I only had to do it one time. So Oh, it's not bad. So then what are the chances? Like, oh, right. we got to do it today. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, not to mention, I mean, we the house, there was people in the house before us, but, I mean, God knows how long they went without cleaning it. Right, right. So you probably can go longer without cleaning it. So this is kind of weird. Yeah, weird timing for it to happen. So Hughes forced her to go outside and deal with the men. She tried to sign the paperwork when she went outside so they wouldn't have to come back, but they told her that they would need her to sign it afterwards because they didn't know what their work entailed. Jill and Hughes waited for the men to finish. It took them about 15 minutes. One of the men came to the door and asked Mrs. Moran to sign and then left. Later, he would say there was no indication that anything was wrong. Jill knew that she couldn't say anything to the man or write anything on the piece of paper because Hughes was watching from the window. So if she would have done any of that, he would have seen the man react. Even if he was like questioning, like, what? What are you What are you trying to say? He would have noticed that if he didn't act anything but normal. So she wanted to, again, protect her family. So for the second time now, she's kind of pushed people away versus asked for help. So while dealing with the workmen, Jill had seen her father sitting in the same chair that he was left in the day before, but she noticed that something was wrong. He was covered almost completely with a blanket and he was not moving. His artificial leg hung from an awkward angle. 
She was told that he was just sleeping. Hughes then made her call out of work and call Sarah out of school. Richard was then brought down to call himself out of work. Just as Hughes was ready to take them all back upstairs, the phone rang again. He gave the phone to Richard. It was one of Jill's co-workers calling to check on her. Richard told her that she would be well soon and hung up the phone. Now, at this point, we had the first phone call, men coming to the house, and basically four times they spoke on the phone, but no alarms are sounded. And this is because the family was trying to keep Hughes calm. Some people could hear this and say they screwed up, but what were they supposed to do? You know? It's, I feel like, once again, like we said in the beginning, I don't think you could ever put yourself in their shoes from the beginning to the middle of this. It's kind of, you, you can't say you would have done anything. You have no clue. Right. I mean, he's a, yeah. he's a violent person. Yeah. We know from his past relationships, especially his relationship with Gene, saying one wrong thing could send him into a rage. And there's nobody that he won't, like, hurt. So, he could snap. At any moment. So no, I, I think this was the yeah, right choice. It has to be. You have no other options, really. You know, if you want to protect the rest of your family, I mean, you think that, that this is the best course of action. No, I completely agree. So after all the calls, Jill and Richard were brought back upstairs. So after all the calls, Richard was brought back upstairs. Jillian was to head to the store for Hughes. Her father, no longer in the chair. So... Her father had been moved somewhere, but she was unsure where. Later, Hughes is going to say that he moved her father to the annex to be with Sarah to calm her down. So Jillian got her handbag and keys. He told her that he wanted her to get newspapers and 40 cigarettes. He walked out with her outside. And before she left in Richard's car, he reached in and grabbed the steering wheel. I have your family, he said. If you do anything stupid... I can hurt them. When Jill reached the newspaper section of her neighborhood store, the headlines screamed out at her. They claimed that Billy Hughes could be held up with the family or dead in the snow. She grabbed the papers and cigarettes and spoke to no one. She rushed out of the store and back to her family. The snow had begun to fall again, and when she returned, she gave Hughes what he had asked for. He seemed pleased. She believed she was beginning to like kind of build a rapport with him a little bit, which could really be helpful for her. She asked if she could make food and drinks for the family, and he allowed her to bring drinks to Amy and Richard, but he insisted on bringing the drinks to Arthur and Sarah, the mint inside of the house. Jill brought a drink to her mother, who she took the gag off of, and she tried to calm her down as best as she could. She then went in to her husband, who was not gagged. The couple, they were alone for the first time. She spoke with him silently, telling him of the sexual assault that took place. Hughes came in and told Jill it was time for her to go back to the master bedroom. Could you imagine? Your wife comes in, tells you that, and then now is being taken out again by this guy. And at this point, Richard is so exhausted and helpless. It's hard to be in that man's shoes. I know that I would be, I would be infuriated. Um, I would just 
I would want to probably kill him myself, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but being in his shoes right now, it's you just don't have the necessary like resources or or plan to do anything. So once again, it's like, what do you do? You don't right. do anything. You can't. Right. What can you do? Yeah. And that's what's so sad. So when Jill was brought back to the master bedroom, her ankles and wrists were tied again, and he sat her up on the edge of the bed. And then he began to kiss her. He chose to untie her and take her clothes off again, and once again forced her to perform sexual acts on him. Afterwards, he did not tie her up again. She asked him if she could make food, and Hughes agreed. He allowed her to go downstairs, and he also brought Richard down. He was tied to the cabinets below the sink. So basically, he was sitting on the kitchen floor beneath Jill as she was cooking. So he was, like, at her feet. Wow. It's an interesting situation um, to put the couple in. Yeah, but I think it's also so he can actually watch uh, watch Richard so that way he yeah, can't watch do anything together. while, you know, she's making dinner. Yeah, that makes sense. You know what I mean? It's just weird. Like, why bring him down at all? Well, because he wants to be down there with uh, Jill while she cooks, and he probably figures if the only person that can stop me is up there by himself, he could possibly Untie himself, yeah. Right. Okay, so while Jill was there, she saw that her husband was in really bad shape. He was exhausted. His hands were purple from being tied so tightly. She was really worried about him. When the soup was done, she gave Hughes four bowls. Um, two for Sarah and her father, one for her mother, one for him. He brought soup to Amy and then went to the annex to bring soup to Arthur and Sarah. Hughes sat eating at the dining room table as Jill and Richard huddled together, sipped their soup from the kitchen floor. As they ate, Hughes spoke of going to get money from someone who had owed him something from a previous job, but he wanted to take one of them hostage. Jill couldn't take it anymore. She wanted this to be over. She just started to sob. To calm her down, Hughes gave her whiskey, which in turn they all began drinking. He told them that they needed to calm down, that he intended to leave that night, but they needed to pass the time. So he took them up to Sarah's room, where Amy was, and they continued to drink and play cards at Hughes's request. How messed up is this, right? They're sitting all around in their daughter's room being forced to like drink whiskey and play rummy. And he even tried to teach them a card game called Chinese Patience. I think anything that Bill Hughes has done so far in part one and part two makes no sense. That's true. There's nothing that he does that makes sense. Yeah, you can't make sense of someone. I think so far the biggest takeaway is that he's asking them to relax, right? But how can the hostages do that when you have sexually assaulted one of the one of the women you yeah. have beat up the the father and we don't even know where he is because he has a friggin you know a uh, uh, blanket over him and was moved to a different part of the house so how can and you the really... daughter we haven't heard from right. sarah so how can you really stay calm when you really and, and originally you said no one would be harmed so right now you're just screwing it up for yourself because if you didn't do those things they probably would continue to go uh, according to plan. But you've done things now right. that makes them on e- uneasy and on edge. Right. Based on everything that's taken place, I truly believe 
that the Morans and the Mintons would not have called the police if he just left, honestly. Yeah, probably. So as they played, Amy read the newspaper. And as they were playing, something struck Jill. At any given time, she could always hear movement coming from her parents' side of the house when they were there. Since her father and daughter were brought to the other side of the house, she hadn't heard anything. Now, she prayed this was because it was tied up. But it appeared what the Morans were doing was working. Hughes was beginning to trust them. It was growing dark outside, and the drinking had made them hungry. Hughes told Jill to go downstairs and cook a meal for everyone. She had made burgers with chips and tomatoes. Again, Sarah and Arthur did not join them. Hughes brought them their food, and everyone else ate in the dining room. Hughes brought back one plate empty and the other one untouched. He said that Arthur didn't want to eat. They asked him to bring Arthur his false teeth. When he had gagged Amy and Arthur, he took out their false teeth. So they hit Amy and Jill were saying, maybe he's not eating the food because he doesn't have his teeth in. So can you bring him this one chocolate bar that he really likes and bring him his false teeth? So Hughes agreed to do that. But at this point, I feel like they're just in denial that something's really wrong with Sarah and Arthur. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, you want to have faith that everybody in this situation and every part of your fam, every people, I can't talk today, sorry. All the people in your family, um, you know, are, are safe and being, you know, as comfortable as possible during all of this. You also don't want to believe that anything bad has happened. Right, yeah. You want to believe you're going to come out of the other side okay. Jill then asked why Sarah had not asked for her security blanket. And she also had a stuffed elephant that she loved so much. So Hughes said that she just hadn't asked for those things. But she asked him to bring the two items to her daughter and said it would bring her comfort. So he decided that he would do so. Soon after this, the phone rang and it was Richard's boss calling to check on him. Hughes gave the phone to Jill, who confirmed that her husband had the flu, but would be back very soon. They spoke briefly about the weather, and then the man mentioned the loony on the loose. Like, have you heard about the loony on the loose? And Hughes's mood instantly changed. Jill was quick to end the conversation because she clearly noticed this. Once she hung up, Hughes paced the room, screaming that he wasn't a loony. He was super offended. So Jill tried to make him feel better by saying that the man on the phone just didn't know what he was talking about because he didn't know Billy, right? She kept calling him Billy, trying to make him feel better, right? She's trying to like relate to him. And she said he got all of his information from the media, which you know is all lies anyway. And this really seemed to calm Hughes down. So it seems like the go-to relations person is Jill. Well, right, cause, well, somebody has to keep this guy from going unhinged. Yeah. I mean, he, he already is, but, like, you don't want it to get even worse. No. So after dinner was cleaned up, Hughes told the family that he wanted to practice his escape before he really did it. This is just so weird at this point. I mean, listen, he's dragging this on, I think. For because, no reason. Well, I think he's doing it because he kind of likes the home and the dynamic and what he can do to the people who and he has prisoner. Over it? And the control, yeah. He don't want to leave. I guess that's an interesting point. Like, he has been in jail for, in and out of jail for the majority of his life. 
So people have always had control over him. Right. And this is his first opportunity to have control over other Think people. Think about it. He literally is getting everything he needs in this in this situation, okay? The control, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not to be weird, but he's also um, he's sexually, sexually assaulting a, a woman. So that uh, I guess, you know, that's one of his needs, I guess. Yeah. The creep. Um, so he's get, having the control. He's sexually assaulting people. He's getting meals and and the comfort of the home. And he's essentially a corrections officer at this right. point. Right, he, and he's the boss. It's it's kind of it's funny. Yeah. It's like it's funny that you bring that up because the whole time I was reading it, I was mentioned. I was like thinking in my head, like, what the hell is he doing? Because if his end game is to get away from the police, he's not going to do it by like holding this family up. Your best bet is to get as far away as you possibly can, as quickly as you can. But yeah. you're right. I don't think he could give up the power I that also, he finally had. Yeah, I also think that... I think it's also a psychological game that he wants to play with them. Because what do we keep talking about, right? In hopes that everyone will be okay. In hopes that this will blow over. That he'll leave right. and everything will go back to normal. He's filling their heads with that idea. But that's not what he's going to do. Right. So after probably the most awkward meal of all time, he brings Amy back up to her bedroom and ties her up again. He then is going to force Jill and Richard out to Richard's car. They were untied, but Hughes had his knife trained on them the whole time. So when they got outside, they were surprised how deep the snow had gotten. Richard was instructed to drive with Hughes next to him, and Jill in the back seat. As they were driving, Hughes turned on the radio to hear what was being said about him. The broadcaster said the search was being called off because of the snow. So both Jill and Richard told Hughes that this would be the perfect time for him to just leave. If the police aren't searching because of the snow, then you should go. But Richard said he didn't believe it, that he thought this was a trick by the police to make him feel at ease so he would run. So that didn't work. Hughes made Richard stop and get gas. While there, Hughes said he wanted to go back home because he didn't want to risk getting stuck in the snow. So he basically was like asking the couple, show me the way to the major highway. But halfway there, he didn't want to risk it because the snow. I know it was snowing pretty heavily. Once they got back, Jill made tea and brought it to Amy. And as she did so, Hughes' behavior changed. He was getting emotional. He started showing the family pictures of his daughter and letters that she had written to him. He then said that despite the weather, he was ready to go. So even though it was too dangerous to do a practice run to the main highway, he's now ready to go and collect money from somebody who owed him money before he went to jail. Again, what the hell is going on? There's no plan. You can't follow it. It's like a zigzag and then it goes backwards and then it goes forwards and... So he filled a suitcase with all of Richard's things that he would need for a journey. And to Jill's horror, he grabbed a bag that she used for work and filled it with many of her things. He then took one of her wigs and placed it on himself. So this isn't, I know it sounds like a little weird, but think about it. It's 1977. A lot of men had longer hair than the girls had back then. So it wasn't unusual to see a guy with long hair, and it looked like he just had long hair on. That's the way it was explained. 
I mean, yeah, totally. So he secured Amy and Richard in Sarah's room and told them that Jill was going to go with him. He's torturing this woman. At this point, the car was stuck in the snow. But with Jill maneuvering behind the wheel, he was able to push the car out of the rut that it was stuck in. He then told Jill to move aside and that he was going to drive. The visibility was terrible, so they were driving in slow silence. She could tell that they were headed towards the M1. And miles into their journey, Hughes told her that he had forgotten letters that he needed back at the house. This was like a punch to Jill's gut. They had already gone so far. He said he needed the letters because they contained the address where he was headed and he didn't want the police to have them. In vain, Jill said that she would check the suitcase for them, but they weren't there. She then told him that she would destroy them when she got back, but still Hughes insisted that they turn around. Could you imagine? That's a lot. That's a lot. Like, that's mentally draining. As they neared the house, Jill grew more fearful that Richard and her mother might have broken free. She was also worried about Arthur and Sarah. So, like, she didn't want Billy to get mad. She didn't want him to go in the house and they've broken free and, like, called the police. Because then he might freak out and get violent. So she was a little nervous. So she kept saying, let me go back in the house and get them. But he insisted that he did it. So it really only took him a few minutes and then he came back out. Okay. With the letters. So he really did need the letters and he came in and out quick, which was... To, to Jill's relief. But this is interesting because not only is this psychological warfare that I think he's doing, I mean, he could have left the letters there, but he must trust Jill a lot. To leave her in the car with it running, that's pretty interesting. He knows that she'll do anything for her family. Right, but you also, he also knows that he has the control because he has the rest of the family tied up in the house. Right. And if she leaves, he'll kill them. So Jill obviously felt better because him coming back relatively quickly meant that everything was okay in the house. So again, they set out on the same journey. This time Hughes had on the radio and he was talkative. I guess like seeing that everything was okay in the house made him like feel a little bit better. So he starts out talking about criminal stuff like he always does and, you know, bragging about things. So she just listened to him. Because he seemed to be in a good mood, Jill tried to appeal to his common sense. She told him that once he collected the money from this man, that he should just let her drive back and take another vehicle. It would be smart, she said, because police would not know what car you were driving in. Which makes sense. Yeah, it does. Hughes told her that if he did that, he would need to keep her with him until he hijacked another car. The thought of him not stealing a parked car but taking another person hostage made her stomach sink. She didn't want anyone else to take her place. Finally, they arrived at the location that Hughes was searching for. He thought his friend lived above a cafe, but the business was no longer there. Obviously, they didn't know this, but 18 months prior, the cafe had been shut down. Hughes instructed Jill to stay in the car while he looked around. So she did. Jill didn't have the keys to the car, and had no idea where she was, so she decided to just wait in the car and smoke a cigarette to calm her nerves. Eventually, Hughes came running back. He was panting, and he threw a police baton into her lap. Where are the keys, Jill? Give me the keys. You have them, Billy, she said. It's like, 
What is he thinking? This guy is out of his mind. Out of his mind. Oh, oh my I can't God, even yeah. handle this. <laughs> so he, Billy says once he realizes the keys are in his own pocket and they start driving away, he says that while he was looking to break into a house, he was confronted by a police officer and that he headbutted the officer, took his baton and ran away. So Hughes, in his typical fashion, is going to retell this story to Jill three times on the way back to Pottery Cottage. And each time he tells a story, the details change and it becomes more and more elaborate. Now, later it comes out that Hughes did not assault a police officer that night. He was looking to break into a boarding home, and it looked like he did. But the only thing that he did in the home was turn on some light switches, most likely have stolen that baton. Right. So, because the boarders wake up and they say, oh, the lights were on. That was it. Okay. So he completely fabricated that whole thing. Of course he did. Upon return to Pottery Cottage, Hughes told Richard his fake story as well. The man grew angry when Jill asked if she could sleep with her daughter that night. But when he calmed down, she made the suggestion that they all sleep in Sarah's room together. Her motive for this was to avoid another sexual assault. Because whenever she was alone with him in the bedroom, that's when it seemed to take place. Hughes agreed to them all sleeping together in the room. Amy slept on Sarah's bed as the married couple huddled together in their sleeping bags as their captor lay in front of the doorway. When they rose, it was day three of the family's captivity. Hughes woke everyone and they got ready and dressed quickly. Jill was doing everything in her power to never be alone with Hughes again. He told her to go downstairs and make everyone toast. She did. While in the kitchen, she was thinking about bolting into the annex to check on her father and daughter. But as she was thinking of doing this, Hughes came down the stairs. They all ate their toast at the kitchen table. Hughes brought food to the other side of the house, but never went back for the plates. He told the Morans that he would need them to go into town for some things that he would need to bring with him on his escape. He made Jill write down a list. Amy was told to go back upstairs where she would be bound again. Hughes and the married couple went out to the car. It was 11.30 a.m. at this point. Again, Hughes had to push the car onto the road because of all the high snow drifts that had taken place overnight. As the couple, armed with their captor's list, drove into town, they were frightened to even speak. Even though they were alone, it was like Hughes' presence was in the car with them. Eventually, they felt safe, and the couple began to speak. But even then, it was a whisper. It was Richard who broke the silence. I can't take it anymore, he said. We're going to the police. Jill was furious. This is the last thing that you're going to do, she told her husband. Everything the family had done up to this point, all that they had endured, was to keep the police away so that they would remain safe. But Richard was upset. He was exhausted He was sore and he felt helpless. His wife had been sexually assaulted twice. He had never felt so powerless in his entire life. He was scared for his daughter as well. They hadn't seen her in over two days. They hadn't seen her in two days. I mean, that's pretty crazy. I mean, I kind of feel the same way that the husband does because, I mean, here's your chance. Now, I get it. There's people at home, right? And I don't want to go back on what I said to the audience two times already, but I feel like you're in a situation where you can get the cops involved briefly. 
and just say, yeah. hey, let's have a plan about this. Right. I'm sure the cops would have a plan where they, if they went back, like everything was fine, the cops would get there, they would corner him and get him. Right. That was the argument that Richard was making to Jill in the car. He said the police can work this out. They've done hostage negotiations. Um, I think everyone would be safe if the police approached it in the way that Richard thought they would. But Jill said that's not what would happen. They would probably just run up. And then what would Billy do? He might kill her mother and her daughter and her father. So she was yes. nervous about that. I, there's also that to take into consideration. I just think that right now, if I was him, my main concern would be about nobody else but my daughter that I haven't seen in two days. Exactly. And, you know, Richard at that point is probably thinking, okay, if this man has sexually assaulted my wife, is he doing the same thing to my daughter? Wouldn't be able to live with that. Wouldn't be able to sit there. And I'm sure Jill is thinking the yeah. same thing. Right. But one thing that's interesting is Jill's relationship with Billy Hughes at this point is a little bit more complicated than Richard's relationship is. And one thing that was interesting in the book, um, The Murders at Pottery Cottage, that was really good is it brought up the point that probably at this point, Jill Hughes is suffering from, that Jill Moran is suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. Ah, uh, yeah. And not, when people think of Stockholm Syndrome, they think of someone is in love with their captor, but that's not necessarily what Stockholm Syndrome is. It looks different between every um, captor-captee's relationship. So at this level, I think with Jill, her Stockholm Syndrome is that she fears intervention by the police just as much as she fears reaction from Billy Hughes. So her Stockholm Syndrome is, I'm terrified at what Billy's going to do, and I'm terrified at what the police are going to do, because that's an unknown that I cannot control. Right. So that's okay. why she's okay. saying to Richard, don't do it. And there comes a point in the car during their conversation that Jill Moran says to her husband, if you go to the police, I will never forgive you. And I think Richard at this point, now this is just me speculating, but might feel my wife has endured more than I have. So I'm going to let her kind of make this choice is what I'm thinking he yeah. is feeling. See, it's, it's complicated yeah, to put ourselves in those shoes. Yeah, it's complicated. So seeing how strongly she feels about it, he agrees to just go about the plan. So the couple go into town and they split up and they work fast and hard to get everything that Billy wants on his list so they could just be rid of this man. When they stopped to get gas and oil, um, they saw on the cover of the Derbyshire Times that Hughes was still on the loose and all these things that could be happening and what a violent man he is. And, you know, they just it validates their fear of him. So they drove home as quickly as they could on the icy roads. When they got to the house, they saw that there was a note pinned to the door with a screwdriver. It's like a screwdriver was in the wood and there was a note left. There's a more subtle way to leave a note, but it said, gone next door, Billy and mom. That's another thing too. Like Billy Hughes the whole time is saying to like Jill and Richard, like, oh, mom and dad. Like he refers to Amy Minton as mom and Arthur Minton as dad. And that would piss me off. I'd be like, no, no, no. That is not your mom and dad. But that is, that's <laughs> yeah. what he says. Yeah. So the note says, gone next door, Billy and mom. 
They panicked, not knowing what was happening. And, you know, Jill at this point gets a little pissed off because here she is going out of her way to not involve other people to hide Billy. And he's just going next door. Yeah. So I she's know. like, what are you doing? Yeah, I know. But that's like still such a, I guess it goes into that whole Stockholm thing. I mean, I, I would, I wouldn't even get mad about that. I don't, I don't know. It's so complicated. Yeah, it is. And I guess we just won't truly ever know what we would do. Oh, no. Well, I hope not. Jesus. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, it's crazy. So they panic, not knowing what was happening. Why was Billy doing something so risky? And they ran in the direction of the neighbor's house, which was about 200 yards away from them. They immediately saw Amy and Hughes walking towards them. Hughes had asked Amy who the neighbors were, and she had told him that their name was the Newmans and that she works for them. She cleans their house. She exercises their dogs while they're at work. And Hughes, knowing that they're at work now and that Amy has the key, wants to go rob them. So they go into the house with the key that Amy has and they don't find any money. So they come back. So Billy is going to help them carry all the bags in from all the groceries they got. And Jill is preparing a meal for everybody. Now, to make her nerves worse, Hughes is going to tell Amy and Jill that the night before, Arthur had wet himself. The women were very worried and asked if they could please go see Arthur, clean him up, help him see Sarah. And then Jill realized something. Sarah was an obsessively clean girl. She was always adamant on changing her clothes every single day. And everything had to be freshly washed. But she had not been brought in clothes since she was last put in the annex. So she asked Hughes if Sarah had asked for clean underwear or clothes, and he had said no. She brought up that this was very odd and that she would have expected her to at least ask. Hughes agreed to bring her clothes, and when he returned, he said that the girl made him turn around as he changed. That the girl made him turn around as she changed. Now, this brought great relief to Sarah, first, because this is something that she imagined her daughter would do. And second, if that was the interaction that happened, then most likely than not, maybe he had not sexually assaulted the girl. So she's also happy, too, because Billy says that he put the radio on for Sarah and he she knows how much she loves music. But it just feels like at this point, they're all in denial about what's going on in the annex. Yeah, like, there's, there's something off. I mean, you gotta know that something's not right. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point it's denial. That's what I really think. So she had completed the meal. Everyone ate. As always, Hughes is going to bring the food to Sarah and Arthur, but again did not return to retrieve the plates from them. At around 2 p.m., Hughes asked Jill to fix his hair, as he needed to change his appearance because his pictures were everywhere. She cut his hair so the wig better fit on his head, and she trimmed the wig so it was more believable as male hair versus female hair. While she was trimming the wig, the phone rang. It was someone calling to invite the Morans to a luncheon that Sunday, in just a few days' time. So Jill agreed that they would go to not raise any suspicions, and then her and Hughes went back upstairs. After the cut, Hughes took a bath, leaving the couple and Amy alone in Sarah's room. There was a kind of excitement in the air because Billy was finally leaving. This was going to be over. 
Hughes joined them and said he would need some cash. He asked Richard if his business kept cash in the office, and he told Hughes that they did, but it was only petty cash. He told the Morans to get up, that they would be driving to Brett Plastics. With Hughes in the back seat and Jill and Richard in the front, they got to the office building around 7.30 p.m. There was a guard from the night shift working in the main building. Hughes told Richard to tell the man everything was all right and that you were just grabbing paperwork to catch up on while you were missing time for being sick. So this satisfied the guard who later said, again, there was no indication that anything was wrong. Richard then drove around to the building to his office and brought Hughes and his wife inside. The safe was unlocked and there were bags of silver and notes all around the office. In the end, Hughes was able to collect 210 pounds, which he was very satisfied with. They then got back in the car and headed home for Pottery Cottage. Once inside, Hughes did a final sweep of all the rooms of the house. He let the dogs out and fed them while Jill got all of his provisions together for him. Jill was excited to do this. It was the end. Everything they went through was for this moment. All finished, she said. Everything you need is in there. And then he dealt her a devastating blow. You're coming with me, he said. It's just like, leave this woman alone. Yeah, really? It's unbelievable. In her first act of defiance, she let out an anguished no. It's all right, he said. I only need you with me until I rob another car and then you can drive home. Jill went upstairs and told Richard and Amy what the plan was. Hughes was right behind her. He bound Richard and Amy again and left water for them. They all sensed that the end of this mess was near, so they agreed to his ever-changing plan. Jill turned to look at them before she left the room. She said her goodbyes. Hughes was driving with Jill in the passenger seat. And after they had already traveled miles, he looked at her and said, I need to go back. I forgot the maps. Jill pleaded for them not to do this. The roads were already bad and they had gotten this far. They could get maps somewhere else. This isn't like the letters. No, this is something different. Why were they wasting all of this time? But Hughes was insistent. He turned the car around, and when they finally returned to Pottery Cottage, Hughes again insisted that he go back in himself. Jill waited in the car, chain-smoking. But this time Hughes was not in and out. He was gone for a long time. To preserve gas, she turned off the engine. And minutes later, he hung out the front window. He yelled to Jill, I won't be long now. I'm going to see Dad and Sarah. When he finally came out of the house, he was wearing a different one of Richard's suits. He had a wild look in his eyes. Jill asked what had happened, and he said nothing. When he got back in the car and tried to start it, the engine wouldn't turn over. Jill remembered Richard saying that he needed to get the alternator fixed. So that must have been the problem. Hughes took his rage out on Jill, yelling at her for not shutting off the car. There was a strange urgency in Billy that had not been present before. He insisted that Jill go to the neighbor's house and ask them to tow her car out of the driveway. It was trapped with snow. So the Morans did have a second car, but because they hadn't used Jill's car at all during this whole, like, captivity thing, 
it was blocked by the snow, so they would need a tow to get her car out more easily. Jill refused. She didn't want to get anyone else involved. So furious, Hughes made her try to flag down cars. She had tried, but three passed, and none of them stopped. He insisted now that she go to the neighbors. Say that your friend is sick, and I'm her husband, and we need to go to the hospital to see her. That was supposed to be his plan. Jill walked over to her neighbor's house, which was a good distance away from her own driveway. Joyce and Len Newman were home. She could tell. She rang the doorbell and chose this as her moment. When Len Newman answered the door, he found his neighbor, Jillian Moran. She was jittery and she looked scared. Can you give me and my friend a tow? Where's Rich? Len asked. And she whispered, Oh, you know, he's just tied up in a chair. And Len looked at his 39-year-old neighbor. Jill, are you drunk? And she laughed and patted his cheek, because she knew Hughes was watching from a distance. It's the man from the moors, she said, smiling. He's watching. Do you imagine if your neighbor came and acted that way? And oh my God. I would be a little nervous. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> So she was rocking back and forth like she was trying to get warm, but she was really nervous. He'll kill us all, she added. Len understood what the woman was trying to do. I'll get my car, he said. Just give me a moment. She started to walk away from him. Thanks, and we have a rope to tow, she yelled back. I've just got to get my dogs in, he yelled. I'll be right with you. Joyce Newman ran downstairs to see what was going on. And... Her husband told her that it was the Moorsmen. They want us to tow their car, but he has Jillian. They decided that they should go along with the plan, get rid of the man, and then go and call police afterwards. They didn't have a phone in their house. So Len said he was going to the garage and that she should just join him out at the garage when he was done. So she's going to rush to get all of her stuff on as he's headed out. And his mind is racing, just thinking about everything that's going on. But his thought process is interrupted by something. There's a noise coming from the distance. It's coming from the garden of Pottery Cottage. That was just about 300 yards away from his garage. He saw Amy in the garden. She was leaning against one of the low walls, a look of terror and pain on her face. Blood stained the front of her shirt and she was calling out his name. But whatever strength she had was spent, and she had fallen down below the wall. Len Newman rushed into his garage to find something to arm himself with, but all he could find was a spade. Joy soon joined him, and he told her there was a change of plans. It was worse than they could have ever imagined. They got in the car and pulled out the driveway. Jillian and Hughes were waiting up the road to the right, but when the Newmans pulled out of their driveway, they drove as fast as they could to the left, putting as much distance between them and Pottery Cottage as they could. So they left. I mean, that's pretty crazy, but you have to remember that... They there are people no, too, like yeah, reacting. They don't want anything happening to them. You know, he's protecting him and his wife. And on top of that, there is no phone, so there's no way of calling. No, it's a complicated. Ev yeah. the, everything here is a complicated situation. And what do we always scream at people in horror movies? Just go. Right. 
Right? <laughs> right, right. So Hughes was furious at this. You told them, he shouted at Jillian, and she denied ever telling him. And now just as Jillian was defending herself that she didn't tell the Newmans, the front door of Pottery Cottage slammed open. Both Hughes and Jillian gasped at the sight of Amy. She had made it from the back of the house all the way back into the front. And she's struggling to stand upright at the front door. And she's clearly desperate and in a lot of pain. Now it's dark outside, but Jillian can just make out the large blood stain on the front of her mother's shirt that's coming from a neck wound that her mother was trying in vain to cover with her hands. So Hughes runs up to the woman and hooks his arm under her arms and drags her backwards to the back of the house while she's making horrible moaning noises. Behind them, they leave drag marks and a trail of blood. And as he's dragging her mother, he yells at Jillian to stay in the car, but instead she follows him into the garden. As Hughes is placing Amy in the shed, Jill looks up to see the window from Sarah's bedroom is wide open. So what happened in there when he went back to get the maps? Had he killed them all? Her apparent side of the house was dark. What did this mean for her father and Sarah? On his way back to the front of the house, Hughes grabbed Jill and forced her up the driveway. He told her that they would have to run. He walked miles with her, all the while holding on to her arm. This is about every time a car came, they would have to go face down in the snow. So at this point, they were, again, soaked and freezing, and miles and miles they walked. So just as she fell as if they were going to freeze to death, they came upon two houses. Now, she knew who lived in them. He asked her who lived there, and she said she knew the Frosts lived on the house to the right. What does he do? Hughes asked. He's a car mechanic, she said. Well, that's perfect. He can give us a tow, but you have to act normally. They went around the house and knocked at the back door. The Frosts, Madge and Ron, had just finished watching the bionic woman. She went to answer the front door and was surprised to see her neighbor, Jill. Now, Jill wasn't really her neighbor, but when you live in an isolated area, everyone who lives relatively close to you is considered one. So she was taken aback to see Jill with a man who was not her husband. She remarked later that the pair looked miserable. They were soaked and obviously freezing. Madge invited them in as Jill was asking if Ron would be able to give them a tow. Madge called for her husband and looked the two over again. Jill was standing behind Hughes. She looked Madge in the eyes and she mouthed the words, help me. So now this is the second time she's reached out. Because she's got to be thinking at this point, we did everything you said, and uh, you've definitely killed my mother. Right, I mean, she's she's literally seen it. I mean, right. by dragging her into the shed, you... Left her to die. Right, exactly. So Ron got his tow truck and drove with Jillian and Hughes back to Pottery Cottage. It took three tries once they got there, but eventually the car was pulled out of the snow. Jill and the mysterious man drove off, and Ron Frost went down to the end of the street where he knew he would be able to turn his truck around with ease. Although the man was polite, Jill had been pressing against his side the entire time they were in the truck together. 
just outside of the man's sight. So he was pretty sure that he had just come in contact with the man that was all over the newspapers. Little did he know that his wife had run to the neighbor's house to call the police because she saw her say, help me, and his wife put it together. When she called the police from the neighbor's house, she learned that they had already been dispatched. It seemed that when the Newmans drove away, they did so only to get to the safety of a phone. As soon as they could, they called the police and they said the madman was at Pottery Cottage. Well, at least at least they called. At least, yes. That's good to know. Thank you, Newmans. Once Ron turned around and got to Pottery Cottage on his way back to his own house, he was flagged down by a dark figure. When the man looked into his window, he realized it was a police officer. They had been told the madman was at Pottery Cottage. He told the officer about everything that had just happened. Now it was around 8.53 p.m. when the police arrived. But at this point, Jill and Hughes are gone. As other officers were sent in search of the vehicle Hughes and Jill were traveling in, those at the scene were about to discover how cruel the convict could be to the family that had listened to every command he gave. They knocked at the door, but there was no response. So they, upon seeing all the blood on the carpet, broke through the kitchen window. Once the officer climbed through the window, he let all the others into the house. There was a large trail of blood that went from the front door all the way up the carpet stairs. So that must have been Amy leaving the house. It brought the officers to a pink girl's room. Before them was Richard Moran. He was laying face down on the carpet. His head was against a dresser. He was tied up, but it was apparent that he had almost broken free of his bindings. However, before he could get out, he was stabbed repeatedly and his throat was sliced. His knees were bent and pulled up towards his chest, his shirt and the carpet around him a deep burgundy. Two kitchen knives lie beside him. The officers then checked the rest of the Moran residence, but found no other bodies. They went through to the Minton side and found Arthur in the living room. He was lying on his back on the floor, his artificial leg hanging loosely. He had been covered by pieces of clothing and a stuffed teddy bear. It was obvious that he had been dead for quite some time. The police wanted to continue searching the house. However, they heard dogs barking in one of the Minton rooms. They didn't want to let the dogs out and have them interfere in the crime scene. They also didn't want the animals to run away. So they called for dog handlers and they waited outside for them to get there and they continued the search of the property outside while they waited. In the shed, they found the body of Amy lying face down. She, just as Richard, had been stabbed multiple times in the chest and had her throat very deeply cut. The dog handlers arrived, and the rest of the house was searched. In the Minton's bedroom, the body of 10-year-old Sarah Moran was found. She was in a fetal position on her grandparents' carpet, between their bed and an armchair. Her wrists and ankles had been bound, and she was gagged tightly. She was still wearing her school outfit from the first day that Hughes had come to her house. She had been stabbed in the chest 
and her throat cut. The carpet around her was saturated with blood. It appears that Arthur and Sarah were killed the first night Billy was there. I mean, kind of figured that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from listening to the story, um, just about how everything went down. But that's that's really sad and unfortunate. That seems like the whole family's dead. Yeah. The whole entire family other than Except Jill. Except for Jill. But Hughes had not gotten too far. Ron Frost had told them which direction the car had headed, and a high-speed chase followed. The roads were really icy, so the cars were traveling about 80 miles an hour, which is pretty dangerous for an icy road at night. And um, this was a crazy chase. At one point, a car with three officers thought they had gotten in front of Hughes, so they kind of drove past him, parked their car, and like kind of created a mini roadblock thinking he would stop, but he didn't. He, like, rushed past them, almost killing them. So they had to jump back in their car and continue chasing him. And while they were doing that, whenever they would get close to him, he would swing an axe out the window while he was driving. And he kept, like, breaking short in front of them, which is dangerous on an icy road, you know? At one point, he lost control around a turn and hit a wall. When the police approached him, he had a knife to Jill's throat and threatened to kill her if they did not provide him with a car. They told him to get into their car, which he did with Jillian. So now he's in a police car, and the officers that gave him their car are going to get into another unmarked police car. So now it's just continuing to go on this chase. This is crazy. I know. Unbelievable. So they travel another six miles. Um, Hughes was headed straight for a roadblock. He swerved to avoid the block and he hit another wall. At that point, he grabbed his axe and he threatened that he was going to kill Jill if he was not provided with another car. This time, he wanted one with a working radio. His biggest thing was the last one. He didn't like that the radio was broken. I mean, dude, you're not in any... (laughs) condition to ask for demands you're on a run man (laughs) so at this point chief inspector peter house negotiated with billy hughes for 50 minutes he was also the co-writer of the book that we used for most of the source for this so it's really the first time that house is going to ever talk about the crimes of billy hughes because he out of respect for jillian moran chose to always stay silent He could have written other books. He could have done movie things, but he chose not to because of Jill. I mean, that's respectful. He was really respectful of her. Yeah. And the only reason he chose this author um, who wrote the book, which is in our show notes, is because she has such a great reputation. So that's why he chose to do this. Yeah. It's important to get the message out the right way. Right. So that was nice. As Howes tried to talk Hughes down... Two officers arrived at the scene with 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolvers, each with five bullets. Howes kept trying to make himself the hostage so Hughes would let go of Jill, but he refused. Howes was trying to find a way to tackle Hughes or grab Jillian from the back of the smashed car window that he was negotiating through. At one point, Howes intentionally dropped items that Hughes had requested, cigarettes, shoes, a police cap, on the back seat and then after that the whole mood changed and Hughes became very agitated he swung the axe towards Jillian and Howes grabbed for her 
the axe ended up connecting with the side of her head and it hit the chief inspector in the forearm. But luckily, this was the blunt side of the axe, so it caused a lot less damage than it would have if it was turned around. When this happened, a shot rung out. Hughes had taken a bullet to the head, but after this, he continued to wrestle with Howes. Hughes was shot a second time, this time in the, in the shoulder, but he still didn't fall. It took a third shot to bring him down. Billy Hughes was dead. Wow, that's insane. I know. That is insane. I mean, you got to think he's not get, he's not going back to prison. You know yeah. he has to go out in a blaze of glory. Well, yeah. in his eyes. I think that was, yeah, this yeah. was his attempt too because he knew I'm going to die or I'm going to get away. Right. And it was pretty clear that he wasn't getting away yeah. at that point. <laughs> I mean, he, he didn't want to go back to prison. And right. that's why he did all of this really, like, I'm guessing. It's so sad though. It is. And it's it's hard, I'm sure, for Jill to know that her decision ultimately killed her husband. You're saying that that she's going to feel guilty for Correct. the rest she of her life. She would be living with that guilt. Right. That's what I want to say, yeah, is that she has to live with that guilt. It's not her fault at all. Well, survivor's guilt is but a very real thing. survivor's guilt is real, yeah. So Jillian was taken straight to the hospital and treated for her wounds, and she was sedated. The next day... She was told about the deaths of her family members. She told law enforcement everything that had happened during those horrible three days that her family was taken hostage and then taken from her by Billy Hughes. Everything she said was corroborated with forensic and physical evidence. After the event, Jill went to counseling and tried to pull her life together without her parents, without her husband, without her daughter. Eventually, Jill is going to remarry. She actually, it's very interesting, she married the son of one of Richard's foster sisters, who she remained friends with. Now, remember, Richard's foster sisters are a lot older than Richard and Jill, so the person she married was close to her age. And they ended up having a daughter together, and they named her Jane Sarah in memory of the sister that she would never have. So Jill was a fighter throughout those whole three days, and she would have to remain so for the rest of her life because she found it really hard to move on. She had a different relationship with Billy Hughes than the other members of her family did. She had reasoned with him, talked to him. She had done everything that he had asked of her and still... Everything was taken from her. So she says that there are days that she tries to move on. And there are days that she's filled with rage against Billy Hughes for what he did. And and, and that he ruined her. They had a perfect life. And it's very rare that you can say that about people. You know, but they seemed so happy. Richard finally had this family that he'd always longed for. They had a beautiful country estate. They were together, but they were separated. They had the daughter that they had always hoped for, and she was an amazing daughter. And she was beautiful and happy, and one day, a stranger walked into their lives and took it all away. Yeah, it's really sad, and it's unfortunate that an entire family is just gone. And the tragedy really doesn't end there. 
After the events of what happened at Pottery Cottage, life was not easy for Jean or Nicola, Billy Hughes' wife and daughter. After this, Billy is known as Mad Billy Hughes, right? And they're known as the wife and daughter of Mad Billy Hughes. And in 1998, Jean, for reasons I'm sure other than just what happened at Pottery Cottage, she committed suicide and shortly after Nicola attempted suicide as well when she made a recovery she left Blackpool to get out from under the shadow of her father's legacy that had been cast upon her since 1977 wow that's insane yeah this story I mean the the tragedy yeah it's very far-reaching and you have to feel bad for there were so many victims of Billy Hughes yeah I mean we (laughs) It's hard sometimes, especially because, I mean, we don't do that many uh, two-part episodes, but this ep- this whole case totally deserved a two-part episode because he affected so many lives. Yeah. He stuck his hand in people's lives and just ripped it away. Like, just took everything and just right. took it away. Even from ep- the other episode before. I mean, the uh, part oh, one. Oh, yeah, totally. His, his two sexual assaults, even his attacks on other police officers, like... These everything that he has done has been far reaching. Oh yeah. And um everyone was always happy when Billy Hughes left town and you know, it always seemed like he didn't want to leave, but I think what you said really rings true is that at Pottery Cottage he felt like he had power for the first time in a very long time and he took advantage of that and he committed a crime that was horrific. You know what I also wanted to throw into that, uh, just uh, some food for thought. You also have to remember one thing. When he escaped, he wasn't on any drugs. He was completely 100% sober. And he oh, was, yeah. It wasn't, he wasn't drinking. He wasn't on drugs. So this guy did all these things with a clear head. Well, Right, you could him, say his, you know, his own mind. the other crimes were committed while he was either drinking or doing drugs. This was right. completely sober. And not that that makes it right or, you know, right any, any you know, any, you know, it doesn't make it right. Well, you can't blame it on on. You can't blame substances. it on controlled substances, but you have to also take that into, into account. The most vicious and brutal attacks took place when he was sober. And this is also an interesting case, too, because it's the first time that uh, Derbyshire police killed a suspect well criminal you could say he's definitely not a suspect because he held was holding someone hostage and was attacking a chief inspector at the time but it was a big deal because police officers in england don't carry unless there's special circumstances and and even so it's officers that have been trained to use these weapons and they were brought in because a convict was on the loose and he did have a citizen held hostage and they weren't planning on doing that but this is the first instance that the police shot someone so, I mean, it it is a very crazy case for many reasons. And, you know, your hearts just have to go out to Jill Moran for being the sole survivor of such a horrible 55-hour torture. Brutal. Yeah. Okay, so what we're going to do now before we end the show is we just want to thank our Patreons. Um, we're going to start again from our February and March Patreons. The new ones, um, if you do want a shout out, you can always request one from us and we can give it to you if we missed your name at all. So we just want to thank Rhonda Simpkins, Genevieve, Lynn Innes, Nicholas Baca, Patty, Vanessa Shin, 
Wendy Hinchcliffe, Shelby Ryan, Paige Bartlett, Angela Fisk, Kimberly O'Ryan, Summer Nelson, Brandy Sanchez, Leanna Brown, Jessica Shannon, Tammy Sutter, Marissa, Ashley, Stacy Zimmerman, Elisa, Melissa, Kelby Lang, Camille Carr, Marsha Peterson, Brooke Lee, Michelle Smith, Valerie Marino, Mary Zellers, Karen Gratitolo, Susan, Annabelle Kausch, Brianna Denae, Monica Denny, Julie Denise Benderman, Ariel Kelly, Angel Disjarlis, oh my god, I'm so sorry, that was so wrong, and Susan O'Brien. Guys, thank you so much for your Patreon pledges, and we've got a whole bunch of new Patreon subscribers for April, so at the end of the month of April, the last episode for that, that's when we're going to be announcing the all the April Patreons. We just want to say thank you so much for supporting us through Patreon, and if you want to be a donator to get extra episodes, episodes without any commercials, then you can join Patreon. Um, that's patreon.com slash true crime couple. And we would just really appreciate it if you can. But if not, what you can always do is support the show by leaving us a great review and subscribing to the podcast. Okay, guys, that is the end of our episode on Pottery Cottage. That was a long one and it was a lot of research, but I figured that was a case that everyone would really want to hear because honestly, when I heard that book was being written, I was like, I've never heard of this case. And I think it's a fascinating story to be told. Um, We will be releasing this coming weekend, another episode, and we'll also have a Patreon episode up. So we hope that you're all doing well at home and you're taking the time to enjoy the small things right now. I agree. And well said. Well, thanks, John. All right. (laughs) Bye guys. (laughs) Bye guys.